Hello, I'm Alex Ruckkeen. I'm a barrister at Thurknown Essex Chambers, specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really pleased to be joined today, uh, not in the shed, you will be able to see, uh, I'm not in the shed, the shed's currently under repair, um, but I'm really pleased to be joined in, in the shed today by uh, Professors Jill Stavert and Colin Mackay. Um, anyone who's ever heard one of these before will know that I don't like introducing the people, I want to let them introduce themselves. So Jill, could I hand over to you first, please, to introduce yourself and then, and then, and then Colin after, after you. Thanks, Alice. Alex, um, I'm Jill Stavert, I'm Professor of Mental Health and Capacity Law at Edinburgh Napier University, and I'm Director of its Centre for Mental Health and Capacity Law, and also of its Centre for Mental Health Practice Policy and Law Research. And I, most recently, I've been a member of the Scott Review team in Scotland, and we reported at the end of September. Brilliant. Colin. Hi, I'm Colin Mackay. I'm also a professor of mental health and capacity law at Napier University and also one of the executives members of the Scott Review of Mental Health Law in Scotland. Um, and in a past life, I was chief executive of the Mental Welfare Commission for Scotland. So the reason why I really wanted both of you to come into the shed or come into the room anyway was, was as you've just both mentioned, you've both just finished work on, on a a truly enormous piece of work actually i mean physically i haven't got a copy but but online it's it's big enough which is the review of uh, mental health law in scotland and i just really would be interested for for someone who doesn't know anything about it when i know a bit but for someone who doesn't know anything about it why was there a review commissioned and what was it trying to cover i mean what was you know, what was the point as it were so i don't know um, maybe jill do you want to just take that to start with well, it came from a place that we we have in Scotland, mental health and incapacity law, that was, when it was um, enacted at the start of the 21st century, internationally regarded as world leading in terms of being person-centred and human rights um, informed in, in terms of the principles that guided interventions. Um, but as time moved on, obviously there were operational issues relating to that, but uh, and also the human rights landscape has changed, and mo most particularly um, the UK obviously ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which has a whole new approach to human rights. And it became very clear that, that our, our laws in Scotland were no longer world leading in that respect and needed to be sort of taken off the shelf and looked at. And the, the other important thing was that, um, although it was obviously widely considered that they were a vast improvement on what had happened in, in the past, and um, they were still not meeting the needs of people with lived experience of, of mental and intellectual disabilities and their families and unpaid carers. Um, and that was the message that was, was coming across. And to support people um, in those, those situations. Um, so um, in 2015, 16, 16 17, um, along with the Mental Welfare Commission, um, we held a law, we conducted a law reform um, for scoping uh, exercise and um I I'll, I'll hand over to colin now because i don't want to take take all the glory for that that report but uh do you want to take up take up the take uh, thank you. yeah i mean I, th I think that pulled together so many issues and i mean jill's highlighted uh, a number of them i mean there are also some quite specific issues i mean we don't have an answer to Bournewood and Cheshire West in Scotland yet. I mean, England will have probably implemented two different versions of, of, of it by the time we've, we've fully responded to that. I mean, we've got piecemeal uh, reforms. Um, as in England, there was questions being asked about the place of learning disability and autism in the Mental Health Act. Um, but I think one of the other important bits of context, one of the things that 
led the Scottish Government to want to review it was it's not just that the CRPD is out there, but that in Scotland there was actually a commitment that it and other UN conventions, including the um, International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, would actually be um, made part of domestic law, so they would actually be uh, justiciable. So all of those questions that people are asking about how does mental health law or capacity law um, fit with the CRPD became more than academic questions. They could be potentially questions um, um, of the compatibility of uh, those laws with this broader change in human rights. So I think the government concluded that we needed to look at all of that in the round. And, and as you say, Alex, that, that's led to a fairly massive piece of work because it's throwing in a lot of different stuff not just about mental health law, but about capacity law and in, indeed adult support and protection law. Yes, I mean, I think it, I have to say one of the things which is I was preparing to do a talk about our mental health review, which is much more was much more focused on our pure mental health act and not not more broadly. And just just comparing the terms of reference of the two reviews are is quite an interesting exercise. An English mental health review basically look at how the mental health act is working see if you know what bits needs changing your bit really starts with including for instance you know that what does the right to the highest attainable standard of of mental health means i mean that's a really interesting really interesting sort of framework within which to be operating so kind of with that enormously broad canvas just give me a sense and give people listening a sense of how on earth did you go about doing your job i mean with all of that how did you you know how did you sit down and go right how do we do this? I don't know which which one of you wants to pick up first. Well, I'll I'll start this time. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it was difficult. It was also difficult because we started about three years ago, and of course, COVID intervened almost immediately. And one of the two was the involvement of people with lived experience. So we didn't want, in a sense, a kind of expert-led review. And, and at some point, we might ask a few people with lived experience and. Um, what they thought about it. He was very committed that, that this needed to engage with uh, the wider community of lived experience. But of course, that got much more difficult with COVID and, and we weren't able to proceed in the way that I think we'd originally planned. So originally, there was a lot of, um, you know, quite open-ended discussions. We put out a very open-ended um, consultation right at the start about what is it you want us to change? What do you want mental health and capacity law to be like. On the back of that, we um, set up a number of uh, working groups looking at particular issues. So, I mean, so obviously issues around things like capacity, around the, around economic, social and cultural rights, um, uh, around the position of children and young people and, and so on. And those groups started to kind of um, tease out, I suppose, some of the kind of potential areas of uh, reform. Um, and at the same time, we um, engaged with experts internationally uh, and, and nationally, probably including yourself, Alex, around uh, uh, looking at where, what reform had been like in other parts of the world. And, and Jill led a lot of work around looking at the kind of literature and, and shape of reform elsewhere. So Jill, do you want to say a bit about that? Yes, I mean, there, there was obviously we, we wanted to hear about people's experiences and particularly that of, of, of the, the, um, those with lived experience of, of the existing law in Scotland, but also wanted to see what was going on elsewhere, whether anyone 
elsewhere in the world who uh, and other jurisdictions we know are also wrestling with sort of the the the, the paradigm shift that the crpd requires you know, what, what what are they doing what's happening so we will get get um um uh, obtaining evidence in respect of that and and just looking what, what was out there that we, we we could use um, and, and very much looking at well, what what we, we know that there, there have been issues with the the Adults with Incapacity Act. There was very sort of practical issues, um, but the, the deprivation of liberty as well. That the, um, the concerns over the guardianship, and we, we knew that, and we sort of we didn't park it, but we 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 knew that there were other issues in relation to psychiatric care and treatment, and um, so we sort of picked that up initially. And we look you're looking at as goals of things like coercion and capacity and support for decision making in children and young persons, and and also realizing that. It just wasn't what we have is just not meeting the spot, hitting the spot. Um, we, what we were hearing is, well, you know, we might accept that somewhere along the line, um, involuntary intervention might might be necessary. But why did it have to happen? There were so many other things that could have happened first, and um, so many things that could have happened after the first intervention that would have prevented it happening again, or would have lessened it and and and. and uh, it, um, me or others re reach the, the full um, their, their full um, potential, um, as as they want, as as one wants to see it for oneself, uh, and so yeah, we have to sort of cast the net wider and think, well, you know, what what's the purpose of, of of the law then? What 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 should we be directing? Should we just be narrowly focused on when it is and isn't um, possible to intervene in someone's life without their consent, or should we actually be making sure that they get the support? At the right time, and that could often be sort of a long way down the line. And, and for, for, for those who are determining whether or not an intervention is lawful uh, and human rights compliant, compliant, actually asking the question, well, what's been done or, uh, um, beforehand? And, and those who, who are responsible for, for provision of services earlier on, having that in mind, think, well, we're going to have to answer these questions. So we can't just sort of keep batting this person off and not providing them with appropriate support and thinking about it more. More widely and more holistically, um, we, we have to we have to think about it now, but also making it easier um, for for um, practitioners to actually um, obtain that support, and for families and people lived experience to to obtain that support and have the right to be able to obtain that support. Um, and I don't, Colin, if you want to sort of talk a bit more about how we sort of wrestle with how on earth if, if we basically. Um, make economic, social, and cultural rights legally enforceable. How, how on earth do we uh, ensure that they actually are that they can be realised at the end of the day? Given that you know, resourcing is is such a, a, a thorny issue. Well, well that, that that's absolutely right. I mean, you you'll have seen that it's it's quite a kind of iterative process, and this was out of that a number of different kind of key concepts emerged. So I think I mean we knew things like support for decision making is clearly an issue coming out of the CRPD and has been an area of discussion in Scotland, but some of the other concepts that I mean Jill could maybe talk about later around things like the notion of human rights enablement it was a kind of idea that emerged uh, from the discussions. But it's just I mean one of the, the key things was uh, I suppose a decision not well probably about halfway through the review to answer, answer that question about what, what is mental health law about and is it and, and is it about just regulating coercion so in the concept of people have civil and political rights including rights to liberty not to have their person interfered with and the mental health act is there or the adult incapacity act is there to regulate those interferences, or is it about enshrining human rights more generally? And if it is enshrining human rights more generally, you do have to engage with um, 
positive rights, like the right to health or the right to independent living, and say, well, how do you make that meaningful and justiciable? I mean, I mean, there's still quite a lot of work needs to be done on that. It's by no means easy, partly because in Scotland we're, we're talking about doing this for everybody. So some of this stuff, the, there's a very important report by a Human Rights Task Force in Scotland, which says everybody should be able to go to court saying my right to housing has not been fully met or my right to adequate income has been fully met. But we tried in the review to think about, well, how might you operate that in the context of mental health and capacity law. So that would include, for example, what right does the tribunal have to say, not just we're not happy about, you know, the circumstances of your detention. We're not, we're not satisfied you need to be detained at all. Where are you receiving your human rights as you should be receiving them? You wouldn't need to be detained. And therefore, we're going to require you to do something about that. So we've posited some of those things, but I think one of the things that we, we do in the final report is, is sort of try and divide the report up into kind of short, medium and long term mm -hmm. recommendations, because we know that enormously long though the report is, it's actually probably opening a lot of questions as well as trying to answer all the questions. There's a lot more work needing to be done to, to work out the practicalities of how a judicial body, for example, might um, require services to accommodate somebody but I mean at the end of the day I, I suppose you look at and you look at some of the stuff that's been in the media just this week you know and, and the examples of um, which have been around over the last few months around you know autistic people being spending years in hospital and some those people have been detained under the mental health act so in, in, in a narrow sense they've had their rights upheld but they've still been locked up in a hospital for 20 years. And, and you can't say that that's a human rights, um, satisfactory in terms of human rights. So I, I think coming back to those kind of examples, uh, I suppose convinced us that you do have to make these things bite in, in a, well, both in the individual context, but also think about what the collective remedies are and that's where some of the concepts like minimum core obligations and progressive realisation, which come out of the sort of human rights world and economic, social and cultural rights, were quite important to thinking about what we put in our uh, recommendations. Because, I mean, you've broken some pretty fourth wall or pretty, pretty, uh, at one level, broken some pretty hardcore taboos about, for instance, where the dividing line is between democratically elected, elected legislatures and the judiciary about the allocation of resource. Yeah. I mean, obviously, one thing just to just to flag if people haven't read it, please go and read it. One of the things is you're not you haven't produced a draft bill. You're saying, no. you know, these I mean, there are obviously some bits which could be lifted pretty quickly and put into legislation. But there are obviously bits which are much more. We haven't even tried to come up with what legislation would look like. We're trying to lay a roadmap. But I think there is I mean, there's something quite interesting. I just wonder if you could just expand a little bit on, you know, if there is a general idea that, you know, there's scarce resource, is it really, you know, who gets to allocate that scarce resource? And it is quite interesting if you do start saying, well, you've got a judge there or a tribunal there saying, actually, we've got this individual, we know they need that. You know, how do we think about, well, how do they know about all the other people? And I was wondering if you, you know, I'm sure that was a discussion you must have had. I'm just wondering if you can, without breaching yeah, the confidentialities. Well, I, I, I think I'd say a couple of things about that. I mean, one is it's not totally new. I mean, in Scotland, we had a, a very important ECHR case around slopping out in prisons um, because the um, 
Scottish Prison Service had people with no access to toilet facilities, and the um, court said that was a breach of Article 3. It's inhuman. And now, the reason they were slopping out was because the people had made a kind of political decision that there are other things we want to do in the yeah. justice system which we think are more important than, than ending slopping out. So the idea that courts, you know, can interfere with resource allocation decisions is not totally novel. I mean, I absolutely get the point that um, asking a, a mental health tribunal to say, well, this is how much we should be spending on respite care in Glasgow is, is a challenging one. And that's where I think the ideas around minimum core obligations come in, that the state needs to actually set out to a much greater extent than it has done in Scotland, or I suspect in other places, what it is that everybody has a reasonable right to expect um, and frame that in a kind of non-discriminatory way. So you can't say, well, of course, people shouldn't live in hospital, but you've got autism and challenging behaviour, so you have to live in hospital. You know, I think you look at principles of yeah. non-discrimination and proportionality and so yeah. on and judge those against minimum core obligations. Um, and that gives, I think, um, judicial bodies some kind of handle on when they should interfere. I mean, I think obviously there will have to be difficult resource decisions taken, and I think there will be, I think judges and tribunals would be hesitant in getting too involved, but once they can see that there's a human right that is not being fulfilled, then I think they, they, they we can develop the kind of framework that allows them to have that leverage. And it, it is something that's being developed in, in other jurisdictions as well. So it's not totally novel. Yeah. I don't know, Jill, whether you had any thoughts about that, because there was something else I really wanted to make sure we'd covered before we ran out of time. But Jill, on that particular issue, any any other thoughts? No, not really. I think what we've we've um, really wanted to highlight, and it's uh, it's something that we feel is very important to, to, to consider, is the sort of new conception or the the, the reconstruction of the, the notion of equality and non-discrimination in rights enjoyment. And it's a very, very different one that the CRPD um, is promoting. It's not, you know, the comparator is, is, isn't just between um, other people within, within a disability group. It's actually between people with, with mental and intellectual disabilities and everybody else. And, the, 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 you know, the, 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 those, those equality and non-discrimination that has to be, be, be assessed by that on, on that basis. And so I think that in terms of allocation of resources and perhaps the decisions that the courts are going to have to make or the tribunals that it must be very much focused on that uh, but I, I, won't, I won't say that because we could, we could talk all day about that no well i mean there, there's i mean there, there, it's a mind expanding report in the best sense because there's each chapter you're going my gosh that makes me you know do i agree do i disagree but at least i've got something to actually react against which i think is you know the fact you've opened up all these discussions is incredibly important there's one thing, I mean, I, it, it, there were sort of the two aspects of the report were incredibly, inter particularly interesting to me. There's this idea of this human rights enablement, this idea of trying to get, I mean, I'm going to paraphrase it horribly and you're going to tell me I got it wrong. But, but essentially this idea of in all interventions, we're going to have to think about, are we, are we thinking about all of the aspects of this individual's human rights and are we actually thinking kind of holistically? And then this really interesting idea of, all, of kind of trying to move away from a focus on capacity to kind of the idea of autonomous decision making, which at least to this English lawyer seems to include kind of both capacity and kind of vulnerability aspects, which could be situational, they could be person specific. 
But the thing I just wanted to kind of, and, and I don't normally let people know in advance the questions I'm going to ask, but I did sort of forewarn you about this. But the, I just, because one thing which struck me was it's predicated on a model that the state is sort of benign to be called upon. So the state can be there to, you know, to enable your human rights and the state should be there to ensure that you're supported to make autonomous decisions. Can I just run you by the idea that, well, what happens if the state isn't benign? Are you in, you know, is there some risk that they might be creating a situation to allow more interventions to say, well, actually we think holistically we want to deal with this, or we think actually, you know, you're, you're not really making an autonomous decision in a situation where at the moment you couldn't intervene, but we're gonna say, I mean, to be really crude, we're gonna force you to be free. And I just wanna, I know partly because there's a paragraph where you say we're worried about unintended, or we're aware of the potential for unintended consequences. Just sort of run me through why I shouldn't be worried when I'm reading the report on that on that aspect about you know the kind of the benign state versus you know which in a way you might think of as the economic and social cultural rights the state is benign, civil and political rights the state isn't benign is really kind of crude. But I just sort of your reactions to that. Well. If, if I just jump in and just say a few things, I know we haven't got very long now, but it, it's, I think you've got to start from the premise, well, it's helping, it, although it, it should, the, the legislation should direct and the state should ensure that everybody's able to, to live the best life that they can or, or, um, as, as they determine. Mm -hmm. And that obviously it needs an awful lot of eking out. And yes, there will have to be safeguards there to, 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 to not, not have the state use it sort of against you almost. It's sort of a two-edged sword. Um, but you, you, you've, it, it's about promoting autonomy, someone's genuine autonomy. It's protect, protecting that. It's looking at protection um, in terms of protecting someone's right. What is needed to protect that person's rights rather than what, what is needed in terms of protection, in terms of restricting that person. So it's, 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 it's getting these concepts over. And I think that's what's going to be sort of some of the hard work going forward is, is to reconceptualize notions of safeguarding rights, safeguarding protection, so that they're not um, termed in terms of restrictions where we have to restrict you, um, but rather that we, we have to enable you, um, which is why we've used some, some of the language, but it, it's going to be down to codes of practice, it's going to be down to, to training and a lot, lot, lot of decisions. and. Um, I think one of the, the the really difficult areas when you when you when you think think about it, respecting autonomy, is you could say well it's non-discriminatory if you restrict someone because the harm is going to be caused to somebody or, or um, other persons, but how far is society allowed uh, prepared to go when the, the harm is to that that to that person? Uh, and I think that's that's a discussion we still have to have. And, and um, you know how how much can we we are we prepared to just stand back and, and allow someone to harm themselves? Uh, and uh, I think that that is very sort of societal and, and, and sort of to do with time. But I'll, I'll, I've spoken enough. I'll let Colin speak now. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think it is it is a. Uh... An issue. I mean, it's partly an issue, I suppose, because in a sense we've tolerated that the state can do these things for people who have a have a mental disorder, um, and, and we wouldn't tolerate it for other people. And and I think we get it wrong on both sides here. That there are people who don't have a defined mental disorder where we should be saying this person is in 
great distresses and in crisis, and perhaps we do have to intervene to protect a person, even if the problem is related to an addiction or a personality issue or trauma or, or whatever. But on the other hand, we've perhaps been too ready to say that we can intervene once we've decided that you have a mental disorder, that you, you can be you know, kept in hospital for, for many years because you've broken the law in a way that wouldn't apply. So, um, I, I mean, I think the point is, is absolutely valid to be concerned about the seeming benevolence of the state doesn't, isn't always benevolent to the people who experience it. But I think there are lots of ways in which you can put in appropriate safeguards. Um, and and it's, it's actually about what is it the state is being allowed to do? And what judicial checks do we have? I mean, I think one of the other areas where at the moment, I mean, I think with older people, and particularly with people with dementia, the whole board with Chester West issue is that we've done things out with the law. And I think within COVID, the state has intervened in a number of ways which were probably unlawful. So I, so I think perhaps we do need to be a bit more upfront about what we think we're trying to do and at least put a rapid legal frame around it. Yeah. No, and I think, I mean, I, I do think it's, I mean, I, it's because it's, I wanted to make sure I sort of teased that out. I mean, it's very beginning of teasing out. It's a very short discussion, but just begin to tease out some of the idea, those ideas. But just wrapping up, I think that fact that the review's starting point is kind of what is the point? I think that's the kind of, that to me is, is it's just so important as opposed to, well, we kind of know what the point is. We're just going to work out how we fiddle with the point. It's actually, when you get into that, there's some just huge questions being asked, which at one level explains why it's such a big report. Thank you so much, both of you. There are so many things I'd love to, to, to keep talking with you about, but I do try and keep these roughly to 20 minutes and we've strayed a tiny bit over. I'll put the link to the report on, on, on the recording of this and very best of luck taking this forward in discussion with Scottish Government. Um, now the report is out there. So thank you very much indeed, both of you. Thanks, Alex. Much, Alex. Thanks.